Welcome back, one and all, to the Unknown Friends Book Review Podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and I am so glad you've joined me for today's episode. You have tuned into the sixth episode of this year's season, season three, in which we are exclusively discussing trilogies. And this week, we are wrapping up our second trilogy of the year, N.D. Wilson's 100 Cupboards trilogy. In the last two episodes, we already covered books one and two, 100 Cupboards and Dandelion Fire, so you will want to be sure to listen to those first if you haven't yet. And then today, we are discussing the trilogy's finale, book three, titled The Chestnut King. Just a reminder before we get started to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already, and if you have an extra moment, it would mean a lot to me if you would just leave a quick review of the podcast to let others know why you enjoy listening to my book reviews. So thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the reviews. Now, The Chestnut King, the grand culmination of this exciting fantasy trilogy. Andy Wilson really understands how to write a good trilogy, how to raise the stakes and broaden the scope of each of the three books. The villains seem to get stronger and creepier in each book, and our hero Henry just has more and more at stake, more that he could lose as the trilogy develops. Hand in hand with that, of course, Wilson incorporates more and more characters as the story goes on, and the storylines and fantasy elements get more complex through each of the three books, so it does get a little tricky to discuss, but I will give it my best shot because the concepts and the themes he's exploring are well worth grappling with. So, book three of the 100 Cupboards trilogy opens, and we see Henry living a new life thanks to the events of the first two books. He has found his true family. He now knows who he is and where he belongs. While part of him still loves Kansas and our world where he grew up, his true home is in another world, through the cupboard doors. And so he now lives there in the town of Hilfing, with his parents and the siblings he only just met. He is, in fact, Henry York Maccabee, seventh son of Mordecai Westmore, seventh son of Amram Iothric. And with that lineage comes both power and duties. Henry has learned that he has gifts. There's magic in his blood. He has the ability to walk through his own and other people's dreams. And he also has the gift of second sight, the power to see the world around him as it truly is, brimming with life and with death. And Henry has a unique tie to one element of the natural world, the dandelion. He channels dandelion fire as the title of the second book says. All seventh sons have some power like this. Henry's father Mordecai is gifted with the strength of grapevines, and Henry's new friend Monmouth, another seventh son, channels the life of aspen trees. 
We will talk a bit more later on about how all this magic works. But suffice it for now to say that Henry is excited about his new life. He is intimidated by the magic that he's inherited, but he is thankful for the family and the home he has finally found in Hilfing. And one of the best parts is that the Willis family, his cousins, Penny and Henrietta and Anastasia, and Uncle Frank and Aunt Dottie, they have made their home in Hilfing as well. Uncle Frank grew up there, as we learned in book two, and he is finally able to bring his wife and daughters from Kansas back into his home world to live where he grew up, surrounded by his family, his mother and his brothers, including Mordecai, Henry's father. So for the most part, the best things about Kansas, um, i.e. Henry's extended family, came with him when he left Kansas to live in Hilfing. The big problem is this. The witch, Nimeon, still lives. Not so very far away from Hilfing, she is increasing in power, and she's setting plans into motion to exact revenge on Henry and his family. And much to Henry's dismay, she has a particular connection to him specifically. Way back in book one of the trilogy, when Henry first accidentally released her from captivity, there was a fight, and a splatter of her blood landed on his jaw. And as a result of that, her blood has sort of taken root in him. And it's working to eat away at his flesh and his life. And unfortunately, there's no way to stop this while the witch is still alive. Good magic, and not to mention strength of character, can slow the process, but the witch's evil blood cannot be purged from Henry's body until she is dead. But what makes this problem worse is that the witch is immortal. She comes from an undying race, an evil family that learned how to endlessly stave off death by essentially absorbing life from things around them and from people. Nimeon is a consuming force. She stays alive by robbing the world around her of life. So how do you kill a witch who can endlessly sponge life from any and every living thing around her, even the grass under her feet? Presumably she might eventually suck all the life right out of the world, and then, then she might have to die herself. But at that point, of course, there would be nobody left alive to benefit from her death. So this is Henry's dilemma. The witch must die. But how, no one knows. And every day she stays alive, her blood is slowly rooting deeper and deeper in Henry's body, which will eventually destroy him. So from the very opening of the book, Henry already has this very personal problem. Either he or the witch must die, and soon. But then, after only a few chapters, the danger becomes much more widespread. 
Nimeon's power is already stretching through many lands and across oceans, and she has evil servants who've been sent on a mission to destroy Henry's family and bring him to the witch for her to have the satisfaction of witnessing his death herself. And so very quickly in Book 3, Hilfing is attacked, and Henry's family is taken captive. And from there, the story quickly diverges into several threads that Endy Wilson then follows throughout the book. Uncle Frank and Aunt Dottie, along with Henry's mother and a couple of his siblings, are taken by force on board a ship headed to a distant port where, it turns out, the witch herself is waiting for them. However, Henry is able to rescue his cousin Henrietta from being taken, and the two of them travel through a portal back into Kansas, where they are momentarily safe. But Henry knows now that his whole family is a target of the witch, and he must act now if there's any hope of defeating her. So he and Henrietta decide that they have to try to kill the witch. They don't know how, but they believe it'll be the only way to save their family and really their whole world from Nimeon's consuming evil. So then while the family is in captivity, Henry and Henrietta brave all kinds of terrors trying to find the source of the witch's power and figure out a way to defeat her. Meanwhile, Andy Wilson continually um, slips back and forth among various other threads of the story. Uh, We occasionally get a glimpse even of the witch or of her minions who are pursuing Henry through worlds. And then eventually, Henry and Henrietta get separated, so we have to keep track of each of them separately, as well as their family on board the slave ship. It is a lot to follow, and Wilson does a really good job of keeping his reader up to date on all the different storylines. It's it's impressive. He weaves in and out of all the different storylines quite smoothly. So yes, there are a lot of characters to remember, but... It's worth it. Um, It makes for an intriguingly complex and layered story that really engages the reader. Um, I would just suggest not taking too long to read the book, because you might then start forgetting where you left off each storyline. But as long as you move steadily through the book, you should be able to stay in tune with it, and you'll be fine. So, So, this is our hero's task. Kill an undying witch. And the stakes are about as high as you can get. Not only does Henry's own life hang in the balance, but also the lives of his parents and siblings and his extended family and, in fact, all living things, because the witch intends to siphon the life out of the entire world, ultimately, in order to keep herself alive as long as possible. Now, I can't tell you much more about how the story itself progresses, because I want you to be able to experience that for yourself if you're interested in ever reading the 100 Covers trilogy, which I certainly recommend. But I can talk some more about the thematic 
content of this finale of the series. And one of the things I want to discuss is how the magic works in these books, especially the contrast between the witch's consuming force and Henry's ability to channel power. I think Andy Wilson does a great job of keeping good and bad magic distinct in his trilogy. Like I think I mentioned in an earlier episode, the gap between the villains and the heroes in The 100 Cupboards is very visible and very wide. I appreciate that. Not that the good guys are perfect, but there is no middle ground. There's no possibility for compromise between good and evil. Nobody can sit on the fence. You have to choose a side. And this reality is also evident in the opposing ways the villains and heroes use magic. The witch Nimeon devours. All her power is used to manipulate and control others, to drain them of life. In contrast, the magical power of Henry and the other heroes is self-giving. Yes, Henry draws strength from dandelions, and his father draws strength from grapevines, but they never just absorb this strength into themselves for their own benefit. They pull strength from the earth, channel it, and send it out to strengthen others or save them, or sometimes to hinder or harm the bad guys. But the point is, they never personally consume the strength they have the power to summon from the earth. They draw strength from other things, but then add to it from their own vitality, and then release it to do good outside of themselves. So this is critical, this sharp contrast between good and evil magic. I know sometimes, especially in more conservative circles, people are wary of stories that involve magic and wizards and witches and things like that, and I respect this kind of caution. That said, not all fantasy is created equal, not by a very long shot. And while there are plenty of fantasy novels that blur good and bad magic and I think can be very dangerous, especially for children to read. On the other hand, there are stories like Andy Wilson's, or C.S. Lewis's, or Tolkien's, or quite a few authors, I'm happy to say even contemporary ones, um, like uh, Andrew Peterson, for instance. Christian writers who understand the power of the fantasy genre to engage a reader's imagination in a uniquely important way, and who are not enamored with the idea of magic for its own sake. Magic in fantasy should be just one more way to reveal good and evil, to show the destructive power of selfishness and pride, and the healing, life-giving power of justice and mercy and sacrificial love. That is how magic functions in the Hundred Cupboards trilogy. 
And it gives Andy Wilson opportunities to teach us essential truths about the nature of good and evil. This question of how to kill an immortal witch, it might seem pretty irrelevant to real life, right? On a daily basis, we don't deal with witches and we don't deal with immortality. Although, having said that, I'm not sure that's true. I guess it depends on how you define witches. Um, and immortality, when you step back and think about it, we do confront on a daily basis. At least if you think in terms of people's souls, you and I are immortal, as is every person we pass by in a store or speak to in church. So maybe Andy Wilson isn't considering quite such irrelevant questions after all. But be that as it may, here is a truth he states in The Chestnut King, which I think is worth pondering. Henry is wrestling with this difficulty of how to destroy something that cannot die, something that has no life of its own, but that feeds on the life of everything around it. And as he struggles with this dilemma, another character tells him this. You cannot fight a hole with a hole, nor out-devour the devourer without becoming a greater evil. A hole must be filled and sealed. There's kind of an irony to the very existence of a hole, isn't there? Um, an emptiness, a void. Its very existence is in its non-existence. By definition, a hole is something that's missing. So to get rid of a hole, you have to put something there in its place. You have to fill a hole to end the hole's existence. Now, how Henry can apply this truth in his fight against the witch, I am not at liberty to tell you, but it's a reality worth pondering on its own. You cannot out-devour the devourer without becoming a greater evil yourself. Selfishness can't combat selfishness. Only self-giving can combat it. And the really incredible thing about self-giving, or shall we say about uh, death of any kind, is that it gives birth to life. This is a truth as old as the world. Death is swallowed up in victory. Decay enriches the earth. Buried seeds split and sprout. Death to self births new life. Andy Wilson is acutely aware of this reality, and it permeates his stories. And one of my favorite metaphors that he uses to communicate it is his metaphor of the dandelion. So dandelions are weeds, right? Most of us don't like them in real life. They take over our lawns and landscaping. And the most annoying thing about them is that they seem impossible to really eliminate. You pluck them, or you even dig them out by the roots, and they just seem to come right back before you know it. They pop up all over the place, no matter how hard you try. Well, Andy Wilson sees in this something positive, even something beautiful. It's a picture to him of 
unquenchable life. So in his trilogy, he turns the dandelion into a symbol of life. Life that cannot be eradicated. That, no matter how many times you think you've killed it, is born again. Even more abundant than before. And while this is, of course, a symbol for the universal reality of death that gives rise to life, I also love how Henry, specifically, is symbolized by the dandelion. Henry is not impressive. In so many ways, he's just a scared kid. I mean, sure, he's grown lots since book one, when he first arrived at the Willis home in Kansas, having only known boarding schools and nannies and hyper-protective parents before. He's toughened up a lot since then, and he's grown wiser and more aware of who he is and where he belongs and what he should do in any given situation. But all things considered, he's still unimpressive, especially when up against the formidable undying witch Nimeon. Henry is not super strong or super fast or anything. He's not a genius. He's not a swordsman. He's not a wizard. He's not any of the things that you would think would be necessary for someone facing an evil witch. Henry is not mighty like a tree or nimble like vines, but he is stubborn like a weed. Stubborn in standing against evil. Stubborn in submitting himself to pain and hardship and death, if necessary, in order to fight evil. And like a weed, it turns out he is very hard to eliminate. The bad guys try again and again to squelch Henry, but his dandelion fire blooms again and again. In fact, every time evil tries to destroy him, Henry's strength just seems to multiply, like a weed. In book two, when Henry finally found his family and was christened, his grandmother predicted that he would be a curse to the witch. Like weeds unstoppably sprouting in a garden, Henry is a plague to evil. Isn't that great? We tend to only think about evil being a pest or a menace to what is good, but something switches in your mind when you think about the possibility of good men being a threat to what is evil. That's Henry's destiny, and I think it would be a good destiny for any of us. May evil be terrified by us. May our stubborn persistence in well-doing plague our enemies, like dandelions in a garden. The forces of evil try to tear out Henry's goodness by the roots, but it can't succeed. In the end, in Wilson's trilogy, Henry's dandelion strength outlasts even the most powerful evil. So, in short, these are just a couple of the themes N.D. Wilson explores in the 100 Cupboards trilogy. His story and his ideas are, of course, much more complex and deeper and more interesting than I am able to convey in a review. 
but I hope I have communicated just a ray of the light that shines through these books. Wilson is a fantastic writer. His style is fresh and exciting and thought-provoking, and I really respect the way he does Christian fantasy. His portrayal of good and bad magic, his clear family values with adults in this trilogy being the ones the kids actually look up to and learn from, and just overall I appreciate his perspective on what life is all about. It's about living fully and actively for others. And when we do that, when we empty ourselves, we find that we're not empty. In fact, we're fuller than we were before. Death to self opens into abundance of life. These are realities that we need to be reminded of. We need to see played out in stories. And so I'm grateful that Andy Wilson writes books like these. Read them yourself. Read them with your kids, as long as your kids are old enough to handle some pretty creepy bad guys and a bit of violence. Not gratuitous, but just enough that you should know about it before deciding whether your kids are ready for it. I have now read this trilogy twice, and I plan to reread the books again, multiple times, I expect, because they are so enjoyable and so meaningful. So that concludes our set of episodes on the 100 cupboards. I hope you have enjoyed these three discussions of the books in Andy Wilson's trilogy, and let me know if you have thoughts or questions about the series. Feel free to email me at kittywham at gmail.com or message me on Facebook or Instagram. I love hearing from you guys, and I am always up for a conversation about books. Now, I bet you want to know what trilogy we're going to be discussing next on Unknown Friends. Well, unsurprisingly, we will be switching genres, taking a break from fantasy, and returning for three episodes to historical fiction. Our next selection is going to be the House of Earth trilogy by Pearl S. Buck. You may have heard of The Good Earth, which is the first of the three books. In fact, you may have read it in school at some point. But you might be less familiar with books two and three, titled Sons and A House Divided. This is a trilogy about multiple generations of a family in China in the 20th century. There's tons of fascinating family dynamics and ups and downs of fortune and just cultural insights in the House of Earth trilogy, and Pearl S. Buck was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, mostly on account of these books. So I am really excited to explore this story with you guys over the next three episodes on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy our discussions. Patrons, remember that next Wednesday you can expect your bonus book review on the Patreon-exclusive podcast feed. I'm looking forward to discussing Edith Nesbitt's novel The Enchanted Castle for you guys, so watch for that episode to be posted next week. As always, thank you everyone for listening. Of course, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and if you're ever wanting to learn more about me and my writing, you can just visit my website, 
kittywinproductions.com. Thanks, guys, and I hope you have a great week. Mm-hmm.